Chapter thirty one of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty one. Let a passionless peace be my lot. A very few days served to re-establish Sibyl in her old home, and with the old housekeeper and the old secretary and some of the old servants still about her, it seemed to her almost as if the past ten years had been one dreary dream, endless and infinite after the manner of dreams. Already in that strange exaggeration of time common after the shock of sudden bereavement, it seemed to her as if Lord Penrith had been long dead. Already she was accustomed to the thought of his quiet resting place on the hillside, to the idea of herself as a widow, childless and alone in the world. There was an unspeakable comfort in the return to Ellerslie, comfort which even the horror that brooded over one unvisited spot in the wood could not spoil the old associations of childhood were so many and so dear the image of her indulgent father the fainter image of the fair young mother looking at her out of the cloudland of childish memories like a picture of the madonna looking benignly downward upon the worshippers at her altar through a cloud of incense these and with these Many a recollection of her happy girlhood filled the rooms and gardens with tender, peaceful thoughts. There were sad thoughts, too, the chief among them the memory of him, who was now far away on the northward side of the Tweed, a wreck of the past, so changed, so broken, that it was difficult to believe that that feeble invalid was actually the same man the same frame animated by the same spirit whom she admired and loved at ellerslie the shock of her husband's sudden death had fallen heavily upon her she had done her duty as a loyal and obedient wife she had spent her fortune upon his estate with a lavish hand had never reminded him that all he enjoyed of worldly prosperity had its source in the Higginson coffers. She had indulged no whim that he disapproved, had consorted with no acquaintance whom he disliked, had indeed been much more conciliating and obedient than many a wife who marries for love and who talks of her husband in the first year of marriage as if a god had descended from olympus to be her mate yet faithful as she had been in small things and in great she looked back now with a touch of remorse the atmosphere of wedded life had been colder than it need have been perhaps a little affection on her side might have warned that hard nature into love and then the thought flashed upon her that the mutual lack of love had made a peaceful union 
if he had loved me i should have hated him she said to herself it was better for both of us that our marriage was only a bargain a bargain entered into deliberately on both sides we did not try to deceive each other in our dealings with those who are gone for ever there is always something to regret some reason for that dull aching of the heart which means remorse some bitter memory something said which ought not to have been said some kindly word or act omitted when the opportunity for kindness was so obvious sibyl penrith was very humble in all her thoughts of that married life which had closed like a story that ends unexpectedly at the turn of a leaf and leaves the reader wondering in her thought of the future possibilities she had never imagined herself released from the marriage bond she had accepted her position for life she had looked down the long vista of joyless years seeing herself still lady penrith going about the world by the side of a man who cared very little about her for whom she had never cared very much he was gone and she mourned for him as a fellow creature snatched away in the strength of his days a man to whom life must have been much more precious than it was to that poor sufferer on whose changed aspect she had looked with unutterable grief whose haggard face was a haunting presence in her life archibald penrith was gone and the man she abhorred reigned in his stead and she thought with a shudder of that border fortress which had so lately been her home a letter from john coverdale written at his east end vicarage gave lady penrith tidings of brandon mountford after she had waited many anxious days for any news of him st stephen's vicarage honduras square e dear lady penrith i have allowed some little time to pass before writing to you not wishing to break in upon the sadness of your life while your sorrow was still a new thing i will not presume to suggest the consolations that alone can help you in this terrible bereavement or to write to you of that divine source of all comfort to which i feel very sure you have been led without the intervention of any human kind god bless and comfort you and help and sustain you in strong and fearless faith through this and every dark path you have tread so far as one has been taught that the way to heaven lies through thorny paths may make the earthly happiness of a friend the subject of his prayers be sure my fervent supplications will rise day by day to the eternal father for you and now to tell you of your kinsman and my charge the journey was managed easily and without any signs of exhaustion in the invalid he slept a good deal and his sleep was peaceful and i thought him brighter and more interested in surrounding objects during the early morning drive from the station 
to the shooting lodge than in my previous observation of him the doctor accompanied us to the end of our journey and gave the most precise instructions to the attendant from the hospital who was a strongly built man of about thirty accustomed to difficult cases and equal i believe to any emergency the housekeeper at the lodge and her husband are both people i can rely upon for faithful service and all their warmest feelings are aroused by the patient in their care i have therefore felt justified in leaving him in the care of those servants and his trained nurse supervised by a daily visit from the nearest medical man until i am able to return to argyleshire which i hope to do in about a fortnight the plan which i would propose for the winter is to hire a small house at rothsey where the climate is much milder than that of the argyleshire hills and to place him there in charge of his present attendant and any servants he may be able to send from ellerslie people whom you can be sure for absolute silence as to his past i can think of no better plan than this my scotch doctor was of mr sanderson's opinion that nothing more could be done for the patient than we are doing now a quiet life with as much open air as the season will allow a plain and nourishing diet and bromide of potassium are all the treatment he prescribes he will be happy to meet a physician from glasgow or edinburgh in consultation should you desire a second opinion but he assures me that the consultation would result only in the approval of his treatment it is my duty to add that he does not hope for much improvement under the happiest conditions the long continuance of the disease has weakened the brain and a kind of atrophy has wasted the frame any permanent revival of bodily strength or intellectual power would be a miracle in nature which he dares not hope to see i tell you his opinion in all frankness dear lady penrith thinking it right that you should know the worst about your unhappy friend flashes of reviving memory intervals of brightness in the dull torpor of his usual condition there may be but these brief periods of improvement must not mislead or beguile us with a vain hope for myself you may be surprised to hear that i am about to abandon my flock in this hard-working eastern london but if i leave them in the hands of a man who has worked with me as senior curate during the greater part of my residence here who understands this parish thoroughly and who is my superior in working power my father whose health has been gradually failing for the last two or three years has persuaded me to accept the living at st stephen's workington he now rarely comes to london and his life is chiefly spent at his seat near workington so i can but feel that it, it is my duty as it will be my happiness to live within easy reach of him i shall find plenty to do at st stephen's for parish and church have both been neglected under the rule of an absentee rector who died at torquay the other day the living is in my father's gift and it has long been his desire that i should hold it 
I hope to have wound up my affairs here in less than a fortnight, and to be established within a, an hour's journey of Ellerslie, where I will call upon you at any time you may appoint to discuss all arrangements for Mr. Mountford's residence at Rossi or elsewhere. You might, if you pleased, remove him to Devonshire for the coming winter, but the journey would be long, and I doubt if you would find a better climate than that of Butte, even in the west of England. Ever faithfully yours, John Coverdale. Cora was with Lady Penrith when she received this letter. The girl recognized the strong, clear penmanship, bold yet with a certain precision which marked the man for whom order was an instinct. Cora gave a little sigh as she noted the length of the letter, and then discreetly moved to the other end of the room to leave her aunt free to read those closely written pages unobserved. She had subjugated the jealous agonies which had made her almost hate Sibyl Penrith, and had resigned herself to the idea of John Coverdale's affection for the beautiful widow. There was no help for it now. What man with sense or discrimination could think of her, Coralie, now that Lady Penrith was free to reward a lover's de devotion. It was her business in life to be a looker-on, she told herself, and she must accept the portion that fate had allotted to her. All her thoughts and desires had taken a somber cast. Her character had sobered curiously since her uncle's death, and a cloud of melancholy hung over her which brought her in sympathy with Sibyl's sorrows. For the first time since they had been associated, Sibyl's heart had warmed to the lonely motherless girl. Heretofore all her kindness had been prompted by a sense of duty. Now there was actual liking, a far more cordial feeling than of old. Before Mr. Coverdale reappeared on the scene, Sibyl had told Coralie the story of Brandon Mountfort's affliction and her girlish attachment to him, touching very lightly, with scrupulous reserve, on Urquhart's part in the tragedy. But Cora's keen eyes had watched the speaker's face, and Cora had divined much that was unspoken. "'You had reason to detest my father, and yet you took me into your house and loaded me with benefits.' Would any other woman in the world have done as much? mused Cora at the end of the story. Most women would have done as much, I hope, Cora, seeing your need of a friend. I tried to disassociate you from your father in all my thoughts. Why should you bear his burdens? Ah, but I was tainted with his bad blood. It was the old story of the adder warmed back to life and stinging the hand that had succored it. My father told me to watch you, and I obeyed. He pretended to be your friend, and I pretended to believe him. I don't think I ever really believed him. I was grateful to you. I loved you at first, and then your beauty, your wealth. All your perfections began to gall. I made comparisons. I compared our faces as we stood side to side in front of the same glass, I compared our fortunes, and then the venom in my blood began to work. My nature could not escape the hereditary taint, 
if the modern craze about heredity has any foundation i was my father's very daughter and i accepted the office of spy my whole mind changed towards you the utter hopelessness of any little liking i might feel for the saintly parson saw him devote every thought and feeling to you nonsense cora you shouldn't talk in that absurd strain mr coverdale has been my kind friend in desperate crisis that is all i asked him to help me and he responded with all kindness and chivalry as for the past let it be forgotten between us i saw of late that you were very inquisitive about all my movements and that you had some motive in your watchfulness you were under your father's influence then but i think you have escaped from that bad influence now for ever and for ever i hope never to look upon my father's face again i am glad you have been frank with me cora even when frankness told against yourself it will be the beginning of confidence between us i like you ever so much better now that i know the worst of you from your own lips cora did not prove unworthy to be pardoned and trusted all that there was of good in her nature developed and strengthened in daily association with a noble woman and in that atmosphere of perfect peace which reigned at ellerslie as the winter wore on that life was not all solitude and monotony for the neighbouring gentry were assiduous in their attentions to the widowed countess and coralie urquhart shared their attentions if the widow held herself aloof from society there was no reason that her niece should live in perpetual seclusion and a few months after her uncle's death lady coralie urquhart's neat figure and thoroughbred air began to be known and even admired at various entertainments within fifteen miles of ellerslie there was always some friendly matron eager to chaperone her to any dances or private theatricals in the neighbourhood there are some advantages in a plain face said cora the mother of a pretty daughter is never afraid that i shall make her swan a crow i think mrs simper rather likes taking me about with her as a useful foil to miss simper's alabaster complexion <laughs> but i am told that you are more admired than miss simper at lady hardacre's dance said sibyl smiling at her niece's self-scorn it is no overwhelming honour to be preferred to an idiot with blue eyes that look as though they had been bought at lowther arcade said cora and then i got all the advantages of the smaller gentry snobbishness the second-rate young men like to dance with an earl's daughter and lady coralie sounds better than miss simper in the ear of bayswater or south kensington lady coralie the name suggests a character in one of gilbert's librettos even the courtesy title cannot give dignity to my absurd name i can't imagine where my mother and father found it could the owner of the name have looked backward through the mists of time she might have seen the hoardings a west end london decorated with a portrait of a certain 
Mademoiselle Coralie, who was delighting the gilded youth of the period by song and dance in the latest new burlesque at the favourite burlesque theatre. The lady was a Parisian, and spoke her lines with difficulty, but her broken English was an additional charm. Hubert Urquhart had been among her most ardent admirers, and had even been allowed the inestimable privilege of giving a very expensive supper-party in her honour, at a period when his young country-bred wife was obliged to forego all gaieties. Then came the usual shilly-shally as to the naming of the first-born. Urquhart, disappointed at the sex of the infant, was very casual in his share of the debate, but vetoed all the family names on his wife's side of the house as too fine or too ugly. "'Call her Coralie, if you like,' he said, looking up from his newspaper where a column was given to the new burlesque of Anthony and Cleopatra, in which Mademoiselle Coralie had startled the town with a wild dance with the asp. Coralie's a very pretty name. Even his mother-in-law, who generally disagreed with him, conceded this point. Coralie was charming, novel, uncommon, and could be shortened to Cora, which was even still prettier. Coralie, let it be, then, said Urquhart as he walked off to the florist to order a con congratulatory basket of hyacinths, white waxen bells just faintly touched with roseate shadows for the lady with the asp the yorkshire parson's wife had arrived in london the previous evening and it was not until some days after the christening that this good lady heard how the town was ringing with the fame of the burlesque actress from the chatelet theatre and guessed that her granddaughter, the vicar's granddaughter, the potential archbishop's granddaughter, had been called after that unholy person. The winter passed peacefully for Lady Penrith. Cora kept her promise, and never intruded her society upon the win widow's thoughtful hours. They walked and drove together, they met at luncheon and dinner, and they generally spent the after-dinner hour in each other's society, Sybil perhaps dreaming over her favourite music at the piano at one end of the drawing-room, while Cora sat curled up in the most luxurious chair she could find at the other end of the room, absorbed in a novel. Cora had a cat-like love of warmth, and was always as close to the fire as she could be without being roasted alive. Lady Penrith preferred the cooler atmosphere by the piano, where the white lilac and palms made an indoor garden. Their tastes in music and books and pictures were utterly dissimilar, but they got on very comfortably together, and Cora's lighter nature, which gradually recovered from the shock that had sobered and depressed her, was a useful influence in Sybil's existence. She might have sunk into a deeper melancholy and brooded more persistently after the shattered life 
of the man she loved if cora had not been at hand with her keen observation and her never-failing perception of the humorous side of all earthly things cora amused her with descriptions of county festivities and her comments on county people their limited horizons their exaggerated estimate of local importance their indifference to all the great movements of the age social scientific and literary cora accompanied her in all her cottage visiting in the little seaport in the miners villages to the schools and the cottage hospital and cora had grown a great deal more sympathetic since she left killander castle and was ripening day by day in her power of understanding the working classes they no longer seemed to her all of one type and pattern all the or lower order of beings with hands stretched automatically to receive gifts from the rich she was beginning to find out strong individualities among the masses to find that hardly one cottager resembled another in character or instincts and that though very few of them might be faultless and all of them might be what they called having there was a strong substratum of goodness which never failed when one dug down to it kindness and pity for one's own class unselfish readiness to help each other and a willingness to make substantial sacrifices with a good deal less fuss and talk than would accompany the same amount of self-surrender in their betters wives bore with drunken husbands and held their tongue when the week's wage was spent at the public-house husbands nursed the children and waited upon their wives in sickness grandfathers and grandmothers stinted themselves to feed children whose unauthorized entrance upon the scene had brought them trouble and disgrace everywhere under the roughest outer seeming coralie found the deep heart of human love i used to hate the poor when you first took me among them she frankly avowed one day after a long round with sibyl but i begin to see that they are not a bad sort and i wonder less at the interest you take in them they were not at ellerslie all the winter andrew orlebar had been dispatched to rothsey immediately after a visit from the new rector of workington with instructions to hire the most comfortable house with the best aspect that he could find in that much praised watering-place and to that house a villa on the slope of the hill fronting the south and commanding an extensive view of the mountains and sea brandon mountford had been removed here was provided every amelioration which thought or science could devise for life obviously dwindling toward its close and here lady penrith and cora came from time to time on visits of a week or a fortnight during which visits some hours of every day were spent with the invalid his condition was far happier than it had been in his captivity at st jude's there were some times when he seemed fully to realize all that affection had done for him 
but nothing could mend the broken life or arrest mental decay and sibyl had to submit to the sad realities of the case the brandon mountford by whose side she sat in the pretty drawing-room at rothsey the man whose hand often lay cold and listless in her own was not the brandon mountford she had known ten years ago nothing could bring back that lost personality this patient sufferer weak-brained joyless indifferent to all the loveliness of earth and sky and sea had nothing in common with the brandon of the past and alas this state of dull apathy was the happier condition of his present life for from time to time there came periods of stormy agitation the throes and convulsions the purple face and glittering eyes of the epileptic and it needed all sibyl's faith to believe the doctors when they assured her that the patient himself had no consciousness of those convulsive struggles nor any memory of them when reason returned only a vague melancholy a dim sense of shame and the apathy of weariness could she wish such a life prolonged yes affection valued even this shattered existence all that she saw of weakness and decay could not extinguish the hope of cure the ill-treatment of ten years was not to be undone by a few months of careful nursing she argued his cure must be a question of time she would not accept adverse opinions and when the doctors shook their heads or murmured some ambiguous phrase which implied a hopeless verdict she argued against their experience and refused to foresee the inevitable a yacht was being built for her in one of the shipbuilders yards on the clyde and she was planning a cruise to the mediterranean as soon as the boat was ready to sail a cruise during which brandon might reawaken to a new life transformed by sea air and frequent change of scene the exhilarating sense of novelty in the movement from one spot of loveliness to another as they coasted between marseilles and naples or beneath algeria's romantic hills the end came suddenly before the yacht was finished suddenly and peacefully the life so racked and worn failed all at once and sibyl felt as though her life must be objectless henceforth she was at ellerslie when brandon died having left him only a few days before and it was john coverdale who came as the messenger of death john coverdale whose sympathy and help had sustained her through every difficulty from the hour she entered st jude's vicarage with him at her side it was over her grief expressed itself in no vehement form there was only the crushing sense of loss and of disappointment the feeling that the business of her life was finished and that all she had ever known of the poetry of existence lay buried in brandon mountford's grave End of chapter 31